We're starting a new series this weekend in the book of Philippians called Joy in the Journey. And I want you to do two things for me this morning. The first is I want you to picture joy in your mind. That joy that you and I can have in Jesus. You got that joy in your mind, that picture of joy? Now hold that picture there, and then what I want you to do is I want you to step with me into a cold, dark prison. Don't lose your joy. I know it's hard to hold both of those things in your head at the same time, but remember, your joy is not based on your circumstances. It's based on Christ. Got that joy? As your eyes start to adjust to that dimly lit prison, the first thing that you notice is a prisoner sitting at a table chained to guards furiously writing a letter. But this is no ordinary letter. This is a love letter. But it's not to his wife or his fiance. This love letter is written to a church. You see, the prisoner that is chained there is the Apostle Paul. And he's writing this letter of love to the Philippian church, the church at Philippi. And in that letter, he wants them to know how thankful he is for them. He wants them to know how much he loves them and how much God loves them. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you communicated your love for another Christian? When was the last time that you communicated your love for the church? It is so easy for us today to communicate our disappointment for the church, our disillusionment in other Christians. Our discouragement over the things that we see or don't see within the church and within other brothers and sisters, right? It's easy to communicate all of that. Let me ask you, are you communicating your love? Paul could have communicated a lot of discouragement, but instead he communicated his love. One of the things that I do on a regular basis as I meet with men is some point in our conversation I share three words with them. I love you. And I got to tell you, most men really, at the beginning, they don't know what to do with that. You know why? Because that's become almost a foreign language to us in the church today. Because we have cultivated a culture of competing with one another and comparison with one another. And we walk up to one another, and we try to size each other up, and, and we're trying to compare. But you know what Paul was doing? He was caring. He wasn't comparing. It's amazing to me how many men I have in my life now because of those three little words that I will get a text. The end of a phone conversation. As they walk away, they'll turn and they'll say, I love you too. Shouldn't that be common communication in the church? Not this foreign language. So let me ask you, do you have a love for Christ? And for his church. Because you can't love Christ without loving the body, the bride. It's here that you and I see Paul conducting a prison ministry. Now this is different than we do prison ministry today. We reach into the prison. Paul was a prisoner on the inside and he was reaching out. And, And what I want you to see here is that Paul saw prison as nothing more than a pulpit to proclaim Jesus Christ. Is that how you see your problems? 
Well, it depends on whether you are chained to your circumstances or chained to Jesus Christ. And many of us today, we are chained to our circumstances. Therefore, when our circumstances change, so does our joy. But when you're chained to Jesus, you don't lose your joy. Do you see your circumstances as a problem or as a pulpit to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ? What's amazing here is that Paul is the one reaching out and caring. Now, the Philippian church had brought this gift and they had loved on him. But you would think that it wouldn't be the prisoner who was reaching out to the church, but the church that was reaching out to the prisoner. And it makes me ask myself this question. Do I have a selfish heart or a servant's heart? You see, a selfish heart is always going to focus on me. But a servant's heart is always going to focus on ministry. Who needs loved? Who needs cared for? Who needs the compassion of Jesus Christ, regardless of my circumstances and my current state? Now, Paul could have written a letter to complain. I mean, he had a lot of things he could have complained about. He could have had a whole list of complaints here. He could have written to coerce the church into caring for him. Instead, he cared for them. Let me ask you this question, church. What are you writing today? What are you posting on social media? Are you posting your complaints? Because for many of us as Christians, we get caught up in our circumstances and we get caught up in our complaints. Can I tell you something? Jesus Christ did not save us to complain, but to proclaim. And let me ask you, how much of your life today are you wasting complaining and how much of it are you witnessing by proclaiming? You see, it is so easy for us to complain. We complain about politics. We complain about our jobs. We complain about our families. It's amazing how many posts. It's just complain, complain, complain. But when was the last time you proclaimed? Not your job, but Jesus. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read one verse together in Philippians 1 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and the deacons. Now, this should cause us to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Who was Paul? Who are these saints, these holy people? How in the world did this church get started? What we tend to do is we jump into a book without ever taking a look at the background. You see, what we will discover together today as we look at the background to the book first is that God birthed a church through the Apostle Paul. And one of the reasons that he loved that church and cared for that church is he saw it much like a parent would a child. He had that care and that compassion, but he didn't want to keep them children. He wanted to see them grow up in their faith and mature and stand on their own two feet so that they then could have more children, that more people would come to Jesus Christ. You see, in order for you and I to understand the background, we've got to turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, and I want you to turn there. Acts chapter 16 and we're going to start in verse 6 and read to the end of the chapter. Acts 16, 6. 
Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north to the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia and to the seaport of Troas. And that night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave from Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day, we landed in Neapolis. And from there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who were gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household. And she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money from her masters. And she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and he said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hope of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and they dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city was in an uproar because of these Jews, and they shouted to the city officials, they are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them to be stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. And as the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off, the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop, do not kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in in his house were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and he set a meal before them and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said that you and Silas are free to leave, go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison. We're Roman citizens. So now they want to leave, uh, want us to leave secretly. Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. 
And when the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and they apologized to them. Then they brought them out and they begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. And then they left town. That is how the Philippian church got started. Do you remember that prior to Paul's conversion, his name was Saul? And he was passionate for Judaism, but not for Jesus. And as a result, he went around persecuting Christians and putting them in prison. Isn't it amazing that he finds himself persecuted and put in prison here? You see, one of the things I want you to understand is that passion is not enough. And we talk a lot about passion today. You've got to be passionate. But you see, passion without Jesus is destructive, not productive. Paul, before he got saved as Saul, was interested in preserving his way of life. And how many of us today have, have politically become passionate about preserving our way of life instead of proclaiming the Lord of life? It's passion that's not tied to Jesus. It's not tied to the Prince of Peace. It's more tied to politics. And you know what the result of that is? It's pain. It's not gain. We're not benefiting and blessing people's lives. We're burdening people. Fanatical Muslims, they're passionate, right? Absolute, full-blown passion. But it's not a passion for Jesus, and so it's pain, not gain. White supremacists, they're passionate. They go and have these crazy rallies. And what happens? People get hurt. Because it's not a passion for Jesus. And I just want to encourage you. It's good to be passionate. But what are you tying your passion to? Are you tying it to Jesus? Some of us, we're more passionate about our jobs than we are about Jesus. And we wonder why. The things happen in our life that they do and we hurt our families because why we're so passionate about our jobs, we don't have time for our kids. It becomes destructive, not productive. Now Jesus met this passionate man named Paul and he confronted him over the issue of persecuting Christians and he said this to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Now that's interesting because Paul never personally persecuted Jesus. He went after Jesus' followers. What's Jesus telling us here? That when you persecute my followers, you're persecuting me. Why? Because we belong to the body of Christ. That means we are an extension of Christ's ministry. You're not doing your ministry. You're doing the master's ministry. And the question that we have to ask ourselves today in the church is how are we representing Jesus with our lives, with our walk and with our talk? Are you glorifying the name of God or are you dragging God through the gutter? Now, it's at this point that Saul becomes Paul. He gets converted. And you and I need to understand true conversion always involves change. Paul went from persecuting Christians to proclaiming Christ. That's a radical change of life. And those of you that claim to be Christians, that that Jesus has done a work in your heart, I want to ask you, has there been a change? 
Because if there hasn't been a change, there's been no conversion. It wasn't about Christ. You may have had a feeling, but it wasn't faith. Paul then goes with Barnabas on what we call the first missionary journey, and he and Barnabas go around preaching Christ, seeing people converted, and churches started. What is a church? It is a body of believers. It is not a building. Now, we talk about coming to church, but this right here, the people, this is the church. It's the body. And it's based on what we believe, right? Not the building. There are so many churches that are crumbling and eroding in America. You know why? Because people are spending more time maintaining their buildings than they are their beliefs. Now, we are called Bereans. And there's a lot of people that will ask me, well, is that a cult? No, you might want to take your Bible, turn to Acts 17, 11. Here's what it says. The Bereans were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians in that they studied the Scripture to see if what Paul was teaching was true. We base our beliefs on what? Our feelings, our likes, our wants, on the Word. We are basing our belief on the Bible. Let me ask you this question. What does it matter if we have a beautiful building and a bogus belief? Because we're maintaining buildings today and not our beliefs. Now, it's at the end of this missionary journey that a tragic thing occurs, and that is that Paul and Barnabas get into a heated argument, so much so that they separate ways. And they have a fight over a man named John Mark. John Mark had gone with them on this first missionary journey, and at some point he quit. We don't know all the details. We don't need to know all the details. But Paul had this opinion. If you're going to be a flake, then you don't get to come on the second missionary journey. That was Paul. Barnabas said, son of encouragement, we should give him a second chance. I think if we posed that question to our church, we would split people right down the middle. There would be some Pauls who said, you know what? We're not taking the flakes. They're, they're going to drop the ball. They're, we can't count on them. I need committed followers of Jesus Christ, not fans, right? And you would feel very justified in that. And then there would be those of you that said, but, but don't people deserve a second chance? And shouldn't we encourage? And shouldn't we come alongside? And you'd feel very justified in that. And what would we do? We'd have a big fight. We'd both feel justified. And we'd split the church. You know what that's called? church conflict. Here's what you need to understand. You are going to see at some point in your life church conflict. Conflict within the church, conflict among Christians, and here's what you need to understand. Don't let conflict keep you from serving Christ. And pastors, those of you that listen online, I specifically want to encourage you. 400 pastors every Monday morning in this country leave the ministry. 1,600 every month. And you know what is driving a big part of that conflict in the church? They're tired of seeing the conflict, and they're like, you know what? I'm done. And I want to encourage you, don't focus on the conflict. Focus on Christ. Barnabas takes John Mark. They go on a missions trip. Paul takes Silas, as we just read, and they went on the second missionary journey. And it's here that you and I, number one, come to the plan. What is the plan? The plan is to proclaim Jesus. Can I ask you, is that your plan? 
Do you notice here that part of their plan involves going to Asia and, and preaching Jesus to people in Asia? Can I ask you, is that a good plan? The Bible says it would go into all the world and to make disciples. So it fits biblically, right? It's a good plan. In fact, it's not just a good plan. It's a great plan. But here's the thing. We're asking the wrong question today. Because the question isn't, is this a good plan or a great plan? The question is, is this is God's plan? Is this God's plan for me? You see, it's not wrong for us to make plans, but it is wrong for us to not pray about those plans. And what is the purpose of prayer? To get God to agree with our plans, right? No, it's to get us to agree with God's plan. How many of us are not just in the same book with God, the same chapter, but we're on the same page. We're on the same letter. Because we're walking in step with the Spirit. And do you notice what the Spirit says here? Not just once, but twice. Stop. This is a lifestyle of listening to the Spirit of God. The greatest challenge for the church today is submission to the Spirit of God. And you're either going to submit to self or you will submit to the Spirit. And there are many of us who are submitting to self and therefore we're falling into sin versus submitting to the Spirit and serving. How do you handle the nose? Do you realize that the Bible says in Psalm 37 that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord? Do you realize it's not just the steps of a good man or good woman? It is also the stops of a good man or a good woman. And if you and I are not in step with the Spirit, then we stop. That's how we handle the nose. We say, okay, I don't get it. But we don't argue with God. How many of us today are objecting instead of obeying? And we want to have these arguments with God. But I thought you said. and I. But what's really driving it is it was our plan. And when God said no, we don't want to submit. And there are some of us today, we've got this plan. And we are bullheadedly going to plow through. And we're going to make that plan happen. And we're going to tell God that you will bless what I'm doing. God will not bless your disobedience. He won't. How are you responding to the no's? Do you realize here that Paul and Silas didn't find their joy in the no, but in the one that they knew? Church, here's the thing for you and I. Our joy is not in the no. It's in the one that we know. Don't lose your joy in Jesus in the midst of the no's. And what most of us do today is we don't hang around long enough to hear the yes because we're mad at God. Here's what I wanted to do and God told me no and I'm mad at God because he didn't let me do what I wanted to do. Okay. The truth of the problem is we should have been mad at ourselves for not submitting to his will and submitting to our wants. And it's here that God reveals his will, his way through a vision. And they hear the the call of the Macedonian man that says, come help. And do you notice their response? They immediately respond. Are you pursuing God's plan or are you procrastinating today? You see, there are some of us that we've never gotten to God's plan because we're still objecting and not obeying on the nose. And then there are those of us, as we hear God say, yes, we don't like it, so we're procrastinating. And many times what we use prayer for in Christian circles is to procrastinate. (laughs) 
We know God's wanting us to serve in the nursery. And someone asks us, and we say, I've got to pray about that. That's procrastinating. That's not prayer. That's putting it off. Because that's not where you want to serve. Because that's not part of your plan. But that's what God wants for you. And you notice they immediately respond, God, thank you. That's what it means to passionately pursue the plan of God. It's not about the nose. It's about the one you know. And I want to ask you, have you caught the vision? Have you heard the cries of, of families in chaos today? Have you heard the cries of marriages that are just falling apart and the absolute mess in, in our country? Have you heard the cries of kids that, that, that are just falling apart because they desperately want to be loved and their hearts are empty? And you know what most of us in the church are doing? We're missing the cries because we've become so callous to the culture today. We see them just as a problem and what we're saying is they just got to get their stuff together. In other words, what we're saying is, I know they don't have Jesus, but they, if they could just stop sinning, it would be better. What do you expect people that are not saints to do? You see, Paul heard the cry, and what was driving the cry? I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Do you hear the cry? As you're listening to the political problems, here's the true cry. We need Jesus. As you're listening to the sexual problems of our culture, I need Jesus. As you're listening to all of the secular problems in our world, I need Jesus. Here's the thing. Most of the time, that cry is not going to come in the form of, will you come help me, church? It's going to come in the form of rebellion. And parents, when you see that, most often that's the Macedonian call. That's the cry of your kid's heart. Will you come? Will you minister to me in the midst of my mess? See, we don't want to deal with the mess today. We, we, don't, we don't want ministry to be messy. It is. If you're going to wade into the world, let me tell you, there's a wake to that. It's not a lot of fun. But it is fun seeing people come to faith. Now, they immediately get on a boat and they head to Philippi. And what's interesting is that it only takes them one day. Why is that significant? Because on the return journey, it takes five days. Same crossing. Something you and I need to understand as we serve Jesus is sometimes we have a tailwind, sometimes there's a headwind. Oh, we love that tailwind, right? Don't you love it when Jesus just fills your sail and it's smooth sailing and it doesn't take long and it's like, yes! And, and isn't it amazing how we somehow feel like we're more spiritual and it's more part of God's plan because we're basing it, what, on our circumstances, not on Christ. Praise Jesus when you get the tailwind. But understand, not every journey involves a tailwind. Sometimes there's a headwind. And here's the thing. Are you going to stay on the ship in the midst of the storm? Right? It's not about how long. It's about the Lord and it's about obeying Him. Because it's here that we come to proclaiming. And what do does, what does Paul and Silas do when they get to Philippi? They go check out all of the great sites, right? They, they go and they find the best restaurants. And they go to the best shows. And they really have a good time. No, it's not about a good time. It's about God. What's the first thing that they do? The Sabbath. And they go what? Looking for people to proclaim Jesus to. Is that your heart? Is Jesus your first thought or is he an afterthought? And it's amazing because they find this, this little group of women. And there's a couple things I want to say about that group of women. Two things specifically. First, it was small. 
seemingly insignificant. Do you notice where they were meeting? Down by the river, right? It wasn't about the building. It was about proclaiming their belief. And this woman, Lydia, was searching. Searching for what? She was a seller of purple. That, that was a dye that was incredibly rare. That's why purple is the royal color, because it's really expensive. Most likely, she was a wealthy merchant woman. She wasn't searching for more money. She was searching for meaning. Do you know how many businessmen are out there, and, and they've got it in the bank, but their hearts are empty? And they, and they thought they could find that satisfaction in stuff, but it's only found in the Savior, right? Some of you, that's where you're at today. You're searching. But here's the question. Are you and I searching for the people who are searching? Paul was looking for them. Where, where are they at? He's paying attention not to his needs, but to the needs of other people. And he's observant, and he can see people that are seeking God. And he goes and he says, can I share Scripture with you in your seeking? And this is a small group of women. Why is that significant to us? Because we need to understand today success is not determined by the size, but by the Savior. And there's a lot of pastors today, they feel like they're successful. Why? Because there's a lot of people that come to their church. But I'm going to tell you, success is not determined in the size. What do we say in America? Go big or go home. Do you know what God says? Just go. It's time for us to drop the other stuff, right? Because what happens, we start out and we want it to be this huge, big, explosive, massive whatever. Why? Because we want it to show self. You think God's really going to bless that? Why is it the small things that God uses, the insignificant things? Because it showcases the Savior, not self. And I love that. We're starting a new ministry. Special needs kids, they need Jesus. They need to be loved. Their families, they need to be loved. But we're starting small. You know what Zechariah 4.10 says? Do not despise small beginnings, for God rejoices in the start of the work. And you and I, we need to rejoice in that. Second thing I want to mention is they were a group of women. Why is that significant? Well, I thought it was a Macedonian man that said, come help. And scholars say, well, maybe that was the jailer that we see getting saved. But there's a couple of significant things that you and I need to understand about Paul's past. Remember, he was a Pharisee. And a couple things that the Pharisees did, every day they got up and thanked God for a lot of things. A lot of it was self-serving, look at me. It wasn't really thankfulness. And three of the things that every day they would thank God for, and don't get upset, especially ladies. This is just historical fact. But three things that Pharisees would thank God for. God, thank you for not making me a woman. God, thank you for me not being a slave. God, thank you that I am not a Gentile. You want to know who the first three converts in Philippi were? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile jailer. You don't think God's going to deal with your prejudice and your past? He will. And I want to ask you, is there anybody that you're so prejudiced against that you would not proclaim Jesus to? Because if there's prejudice in your life, guess what? God's, God's going to help you deal with that. You see, it's here in the midst of the plan and the proclaiming that we come to my favorite part, the problems. Why is that my favorite part? Not because I like problems. But because here's the thing, Satan comes after people who are serving Jesus because he's afraid. 
And you and I need to see something here. When there's true spiritual success, small, tiny group of women come to Jesus. That's spiritual success. Satan will show up. Why? Paul, Philippi is mine. Paul, this is my territory, and I'm not giving it up without a fight. Do you notice when he comes at Paul, Paul is heading to where? Place of prayer. Does it surprise you that when you pray, you have problems? If you were going to passionately pursue God's plan, you were going to passionately proclaim Jesus, and you were going to be a person of prayer, and you think you're going to live a problem-free life, you're insane. That is the definition of Christian insanity. And yet what happens to most of us today? We're serving Jesus. We finally decide we're going to stop sitting on the sidelines. That's where Satan wants you. We're going to step onto the field and we're going to really truly be servants of God. And then Satan comes after us and what do we say? Well, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I quit. Why? Because we're insane. Because we think that we can passionately pursue Jesus and have a problem-free life. What did Jesus say? They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. Paul was not shocked or surprised by this. And you need to see it comes in two forms. One, spiritual attack, and secondly, physical attack. And here's this this servant girl, and, and she has a demon in her. And notice what that demon is saying. Over and over, day after day. Can you imagine how frustrating that was to be Paul? You're trying to pray. In the background. Can you imagine how frustrating that was? And what was the demon causing her to say? These men are servants of the Most High God, and they're here to tell you how to get saved. Satan knows what you're up to, people. Can I ask you a tough question? Is that what Satan would say about you? You are a servant of the Most High God, and your goal in life is to see people get saved. And the reason a lot of us don't get attacked really attacked it's because we're sitting on the sidelines because we're not servants of the most high god we're servants of self we're not here to share about salvation we're here to share about self and we're making it about possessions today instead of people stuff instead of souls now why did satan do this by the way he knows not just who you are but whose you are He did it to frustrate Paul. Why? Because two things can happen when you and I get frustrated. And there's a third option, and that's what Paul chose. But two things that are very common when Christians get frustrated by Satan. And by the way, Satan has a couple of plays in his book, and he runs the same plays over and over, and we just keep falling for them. The Bible says that we should know the schemes of the devil, right? Do not be surprised by his playbook. It's pretty simple, but it's been working for thousands of years because we just won't pay attention to these simple plays. And one of those plays is to frustrate you. And one of two things will happen. You'll get frustrated and you'll quit. Well, this is what it is. I'm out of here. I'm tired of being frustrating. Why? Because you make it about your feelings, not about your faith. Or you get frustrated and in your anger, you sin. Satan would love nothing more than in your... Guys, you've been there. Satan's coming after you and you you don't know what's going on in your marriage but you forgot it's a spiritual attack. And you find yourself getting frustrated and then you yell in anger and it hurts your wife's heart. And Satan's going, yes. He made it about his feelings and not about faith. 
That's the goal of frustration. But how does Paul handle frustration? How do you and I, in the midst of ministry, handle frustration? Here's how he handled it. In the name of Jesus. Guys, that's how you handle spiritual attack in your marriage. Moms, that's how you handle spiritual attack in your family with your kids. That's how you handle those spiritual attacks at your job. In the name of Jesus. Now, Paul could have said, in the name of Paul, the great preacher and apostle, I command you, what would have happened? Absolutely nothing. Why? Because there's no power in the name of Paul. There is no power in the name of Giles. There is power in the name of Jesus. You see, someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, there is power in the name of Jesus. You've got to come at your frustrations through Jesus. And what happens? Immediately. I love that. There's no pause. Do you see the power? Immediately, the demon flees. Why? He's confronted with the real power. He can say they're servants of the Most High God, but the moment he hears the name of Jesus, I'm out of here. That's exactly what happens to darkness. Why? Because we just introduced the light, and the darkness can't hang around when there's light. You bring the Lord, you bring the light, demons will flee. They will leave. And what happens to this little girl? She is now free, free from Satan and free from men that just want to make money with her. Here's something we need to ask ourselves today. Are we focused on our frustrations or people being freed? Are you okay with being frustrated by the enemy so other people can be free in Jesus? Because these are momentary frustrations. But what if she was never free? What if that, that ended up being a bondage that didn't just last here on this earth but for all eternity and she ended up in hell? Think about that. Your, your frustrations, they are temporary. Even if you're frustrated your whole life. Don't focus on your frustrations. Focus on people's freedoms. And not just people being free spiritually, but physically too. Today, we have a lot of women that are stuck just like slaves, like this young girl was in sexual slavery. Why? Because men want to make money off of women. Nothing's changed 2,000 years. We've still got slavery today. It's just that we've done a really good job of ignoring it in America. It's going up and down, I-80, all the time. But we're in such a big hype over things, and and I'm not here to preach against the Huskers, but, but we get so caught up in football, but do we get caught up in people being free in Jesus? And it's going on all over our state and this country. And it's at an epidemic proportion. And you know what a lot of us as guys are doing? We're not joining in the fight for Jesus. We're joining in the fight for the enemy. Because we're off having our secret little time where we're going to try to feed our flesh and try to get a feel good from something called pornography. And you know what we're doing? We're funding a trade that trades people and puts them into slavery. And I want to challenge us. Men, if every man in this world said, that's it, I'm done with this despicable, sick, twisted, Satan plan, what would happen? The industry would be over tomorrow. It'd be gone. Think of all the people that could come to freedom. 
But see, we're making about feeding our flesh today, not about faith, not about freedom. You and I need to understand that we're going to have problems. The problems don't go away at this point. We're no longer dealing with the demon, but we got a new problem. And what is that? Well, men get mad when you mess with their money. That's the bottom line. Nothing's changed there either, right? You start messing with people's money, they get mad. And they form a mob and they falsely accuse Paul and Silas of breaking the law and trying to get other people to break the law. Here's what you need to understand. They're ruining their reputation. Don't worry about your reputation. Worry about your character. Okay? Your reputation is who people say you are. Your character is who you really are. You focus on your character. Let God handle your reputation, okay? And some of us today, we're running around trying to maintain some kind of a reputation. Let God handle that. God took care of Joseph's reputation. Joseph took care of his character. You and I need to understand that, that we're going to get attacked here by men. And the attack comes in the first form of ruining their reputation. Secondly, they strip them. That's humiliating. Can you imagine for a moment if we stripped you naked in Scott's Bluff downtown and there was a mob yelling and carrying on? Do you know how humiliating that is for us? You see, it strips us of our dignity, doesn't it? Not just your reputation, but your dignity. And then we're going to beat you with big sticks till you're bloody. And then we're going to put you in prison, not just in prison, but in the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon. Now, here's a question. How do you respond to those kinds of problems and that kind of pain? Because there are some of you, people have come after your reputation. For some of you, people have come after your dignity. For some of you, people have hurt you. And that hurt is not just a physical hurt, it's an emotional hurt. How do you handle the problems and the pain of life? One word, praise. And when are they praising Jesus? At midnight, the darkest part of the day. Are you going to praise at the darkest part of the day in the darkest part of the dungeon? When things couldn't get any worse. Here's what you and I need to understand. Our greatest weapon today is what? Worship. This next week, Friday, we got a night of worship and some of us are like, ah, Do you realize it's a night of war? That's what worship is. And I want to encourage you to come. Invite your friends. Satan's going to try to stop that. But do you realize the power of praise? There are people that are listening to your life, how you're living. And, and, and you know, it's easy for us to worship here once a week when we've got an amazing worship team leading us and there's a whole bunch of people. But can you imagine what that was like when when you've lost your reputation, you've lost your dignity, you physically are in pain. Can you imagine how hard that would have been to sing? Every single breath would have hurt. Kind of reminds us a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? They persecuted him, they're going to persecute you. There were people who they didn't even know and they've already been humiliated and they could have been laughed at some more. There were so many reasons to not praise, but there was one reason to praise. My joy is still in Jesus. I'm not chained to my circumstances. I'm chained to Jesus Christ. And as long as you are saved, you are secure. You're chained to Christ. You have a voice. What are you going to use it for? Because here's what many of us are doing today. We have forgotten that we live our lives out loud in the world. We're a witness. And it's in the hard, dark, 
dungeon times when the world pays attention. When everything's going great for you and you're praising Jesus, the world doesn't pay attention to that. It's when you're in the midst of the storm and you're still singing, they're like, that does not compute. Something is radically different. Something's real. That guy's got what I want. And, and notice, they were listening, captive audience. My prison is just a pulpit to proclaim Jesus. Now, what happened? Well, the same thing happened there as it did at Jericho. Earthquake. Why? We sent in the worship team. We went to war. Power of praise brings down barriers. Brought down the walls of Jericho, allowed the people to go into the promised land, right? And now it breaks open the prison doors, the chains fall off. What, so that Paul doesn't have to be captive to his circumstances? No, because there's somebody in there that doesn't have freedom, and it's the most unlikely person. It's the jailer who is actually in jail. He's the real prisoner, spiritual prison. And he comes running in, and he sees the problem. And I want you to imagine for a moment, you are the head jailer at the detention center in Scotts Bluff. There is an earthquake because some guy is praising Jesus. All the cell doors bust open. All of the shackles come off, and every prisoner in the whole cell block is free. Do you think you got a problem? Do you see his solution to his problems? I'm going to kill myself. Do you know today there are a lot of people that see the solution to their problems as suicide? And some of you in here, that's a thought in the back of your head. Only every once in a while it rolls to the front of your head. It comes to the forefront of your mind and you think because of my financial mess, because of my relational mess, because of the decisions that I've made, the solution is suicide. Let me tell you, that's Satan's solution. But Paul proclaimed the Savior's solution. And that's salvation. Coming to Jesus being born again, becoming a new creation. And I love this. Paul could have said, you know what, Jesus, I praised you. You took away my circumstances. It was all about me. Thank you, Jesus. I'm out of here, right? But what's his focus? It's not me. It's ministry. There's a reason Jesus had me in this jail, and it wasn't about me. Where's the ministry? Where's the ministry? Is that your life? And so he doesn't leave. And what's absolutely mind-boggling to me is none of the prisoners leave. That is not normal. When you have an opportunity to escape and you're a felon, you flee, right? Unless you've got this man in your life that you're looking up to, that you're leaning on, that God brought into your life. Do you understand the power of praise? We talk all the time about leadership lessons. Here's number one leadership lesson. Live for the Lord. Leadership lesson number one, just live for the Lord. That's it. If you and I would absolutely sell out for the Savior, we would live for the Lord, guess what? People will listen, people will look, and people will follow. And they're all just standing there like, we ain't doing nothing until Paul does something. I want to be with that guy because he's got an amazing voice. No, because that guy understands the power. He's tied to God. And what does the jailer say? What do I have to do to be saved? Do you see Lydia was seeking? And Paul was right where God wanted. Here's the jailer. He's seeking. Paul's right where God has him. Maybe your circumstances are Christ-ordained because God wants you right in the midst of other people's pain. 
And maybe it's going to cause you some problems. Maybe it's going to cause you some frustration. But it's going to allow people to come to freedom. And some of you right now, you're asking that same question. What do I need to do to be saved? The Bible says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're like, that's too simple. Here's why it's simple. Here's why salvation is simple. Because the complicated part God already did on the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ. You and I just have to admit that we're sinners, cry out for Jesus Christ to save us. That's it. It's believing. So many of us, we want salvation to be trying, trying, trying. It's not trying, it's trusting. Why? Because Jesus already did the work. That's why it's simple. And I love this. There's a change in that man, isn't there? But it wasn't just faith for him, but for his whole family. Who in your family needs to get saved? Are you praying for them? Are you pursuing them? Are you praying that God would put people in their life? And I love this. They're all sitting around the table and what? They're praising God. Why? Because it's not about my pain in that moment. It's about, number four, the prize. You see, the prize is not about stuff. It's about salvation. It is about souls. It is about people. And you and I need to understand something. We will never birth a church. We will never birth a ministry. We will never see somebody be born again without an element of pain. One of the things that every birth has in common is pain. But can I ask you this question? Do mamas focus on the pain or the person they just brought into this world? You mamas know the answer to that, right? Isn't that an amazing miracle of God that in the midst of that agony of pain of childbirth, you're focused on the prize, not on the pain. And so here we have these new converts to Christ. We have the first church in Philippi. Can we talk just for a minute about that church? It was made up of a wealthy merchant woman, a former demon-possessed slave girl, and a Gentile jailer. Does that seem strange to you? You see, here's the thing. What do they have in common? Christ. You know what we're doing in the church today? We're trying to find our commonality in our careers, in our hobbies, our likes, our dislikes. You know what happens when we try to find our commonality in those things? We form cliques. But when we find our commonality in Jesus Christ, we cultivate community. So let me ask you this question. What plan are you pursuing? Whose name are you proclaiming? Are you focused on the problems or are you focused on the prize? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for not just a story, but fact. That your spirit went ahead and saved people in Philippi. And you used a man named Paul and Silas. God, help us to be Paul and Silas this week. Help us to focus on opportunities to minister and less on me. For we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.